Welcome to Songcraft. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Beaumont. You're listening to the song Till the Wheels Fall Off, performed by the band Blackberry Smoke and written by the group's frontman and our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Charlie Starr. Charlie Starr is a guitarist, vocalist, and the primary songwriter of the Atlanta-based Blackberry Smoke. Building a dedicated fan base over the past two decades, Blackberry Smoke has perfected a gritty southern brand of rootsy rock and roll that crosses genres. Their commercial breakthrough came with the 2012 album The Whippoorwill, which landed on Billboard's mainstream country Americana and indie charts. Their follow-up album, Holding All the Roses, produced by Brendan O'Brien, became the first independently released album in modern history to hit number one on the Billboard Country Album Chart. Both Holding All the Roses and the follow-up, Like an Arrow, hit number one on the UK Rock Chart, in addition to topping the US Country Chart. Their 2021 album, You Hear Georgia, topped the Billboard Americana and Folk Chart, giving the band dominance in yet another musical category. Blackberry Smoke's most recent release, recorded with the help of Grammy-winning producer Dave Cobb, is called Be Right Here. Part 1. Hey Songcraft listeners, today's episode, like so many others, is brought to you by Pearl Snap Studios. Go to pearlsnapstudios.com and find out what they can do for your song. No matter what genre you write in, they can help you make a demo or fully produced record that you will be absolutely proud to share with friends, family, or even pitch to professional artists. Dozens of Songcraft listeners before you have taken advantage of their services and have been more than pleased. We've given you some of the testimonials on air. I'm sure we'll do it again, but find out what they can do for you. Hit up our friend Justin and his team at pearlsnapstudios.com. Tell them that Songcraft sent you and you'll get a discount on your first recording. Well, Scott, uh, before we started recording this interview, we just spent uh, a couple minutes listening to the new Pearl Jam single. Yes, um, because I like that's it. A, yeah, it's a formative band for us, and, and the song rips. I mean, it's it's heavy, it's awesome, it's fun, and it's got me thinking about them coming on tour. They're going to yeah. be coming to L.A. in May, and I'm right. already trying to jockey to figure out how to get tickets because I let my fan club membership lapse. But that's another conversation. I'm surprised to hear for that. For another day. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, well, you we, know, we are going to need to have that I let it lapse in 2020 because I didn't think there would be shows anymore. Okay. <laughs> All right. And I was like, I'm not paying for this anymore. Right. No one's ever going to play a concert again, so I let <laughs> right. it lapse. Okay. Um, and just for the listeners to know, I, I have gone to great lengths to see Pearl Jam in my life. I mean, you and I drove down to San Diego just yes. last year. That's nothing compared to what you've done to see Pearl my Jam. My wife and I went to New York City to see them at Madison Square Garden on our anniversary because she walked down the aisle to their version of the Who's Love Rain or Me. So their anniversary was a special time for us in Pearl Jam. <laughs> right. we, we share that date. <laughs> and uh, But then uh, my 40th birthday, my wife actually surprised me with a trip to Brazil to see Pearl Jam. So we went all the way <laughs> That's insane. to Sao Paulo right. and saw them down there. Um, so, you know, I'm willing to travel. It's, <laughs> yeah, to you see... are. You're willing to obtain a passport. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, the first time that I saw them was with you. We went down to see them. You had already seen them before, but we, we went to San Diego in 99, I think it might have been, maybe 2000. 2000, yeah. It's right after so, I moved to LA. Yeah, yeah. It's the first show I um, think I went to. After and you've I... traveled to see some shows. I've traveled to see some shows. I've never been outside the United States for the purpose of, of seeing a show. Um, now, you remember when Led Zeppelin did that sort of reunion thing? The and, No Quarter thing in the 90s? No, no, no. The like early 2000s, they did that one show. The and, Celebration and, Day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I I sort of think like, man, may, I would have maybe 
done oh, dude. that. I maybe I should have done that. Yeah. Um, that might have been one that was worth it, but. No, I have have traveled to see shows. Um, I remember when uh, my now wife and I were dating in college pretty early on, I think about two or three months into our our dating life, uh, we drove from Nashville to St. Louis, which is about a six hour drive to see uh, Counting Crows and then drove back. Uh, yeah. that same night. So that was a 12 hour, uh, that's a long December. Trip. Yeah. <laughs> it was a very long December. Um, they weren't playing but, around here, but the, <laughs> nice. Um, but that was as much about trying to impress, uh, you know, a, a girl sure. who happened to be a huge uh, fan of counting crows. Um, but no, I have, I have, I will travel to, to see a show. I might go, you know, two or three hours. I remember we went to Las Vegas to see guns and roses when they first yep. kind of reformed with, with Duff and slash. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll definitely travel. I don't know that I have, have ever like bought a plane ticket. Just right. for a show, we had uh, my wife is a huge Metallica fan, and when we, I think we had just gotten married, and she won a contest, a fan club contest, to see a rehearsal show at the Cow Palace in San Francisco. Wow! Um, so they were doing full lights, full everything in the Cow Palace, and I think there were about two to three hundred people. Oh man! There, so just sort of surrounding the stage, and so we took a trip. Um, to San Francisco, stayed in a Motel 6, which is a whole other story about the, the motel. <laughs> but um, yeah, that was interesting because um, we we took a taxi to the show. This is before Uber. Right. Took a cab to the show. And we're like, yeah, because we're probably going to drink at the show. And then we'll take, you know, right. a few beers and take the cab back over to the hotel. Well, they don't, no cabs come around <laughs> when, when there's, there's only not... 300 people at the Cow Palace. <laughs> right, it wasn't right. like a... a sanctioned city event <laughs> right <laughs> and so we had to walk through um we had to walk through some mean streets man to get back to the while not fully sharp <laughs> yeah well not well you know they didn't sell any alcohol at the show oh, either. so it was so all for not we were yeah just like clear-eyed and terrified um so i think traveling traveling to see a band may be the mark of fandom um because right. you're not only paying the exorbitant ticket price but you're going to pay travel costs you're likely going to have to stay somewhere. Yeah. I mean, this is an investment, uh, both in time and money. We, we were supposed to have gone to, to Phoenix to see Rage Against the Machine until they just decided they don't exist anymore. <laughs> right. um, but I, I just thought about this this morning, that there might even be a deeper level of fandom. As I was thinking about these Pearl Jam shows coming up in May. A deeper level of fandom than flying to Brazil to see uh, to see. Possibly, event. yes. Okay. And that, that's, I'm interested to hear that. Well... I, there's some work travel that I'm looking at possibly doing uh-huh. in May. Um, our anniversary is in May, and I have my daughter's birthday is also in May. And I'm like, I don't think I should travel in May because Pearl Jam's coming to LA. <laughs> so is it <laughs> is it a bigger deal to travel to see a band right. or to shut down travel in your life because the band is coming to your town? I don't even have tickets. <laughs> But it's they're happening. Just, they're going to be here, it's, and I, w- I don't want to be a bad I host. I don't want to leave town while <laughs> while Pearl Jam's here. That's amazing. And so the question is, are you a bigger fan if you travel to see a band or if you actually if you don't cancel travel? Like you actively do not leave town where you would have otherwise. That's, yeah. a, that's a very good question. I think they're, they're both pretty deep levels of either fandom or dysfunction. I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> well, interestingly, um, I uh, have tickets to see Madonna, uh, which I gave my wife uh, two tickets for 
Madonna as a Christmas gift. She or, said, or, you have to go. <laughs> yeah, or birthday gift yeah. or something. Um, and now I have to go to London. Um, and Don't talk to me about Brazil, bro. <laughs> well, no, I'm not going to London to see Madonna. Madonna's playing oh, here okay. in at the Forum. Uh, We're just working but, this all out in front but, of all of you. <laughs> but I have to go to London uh, for a work thing. Yeah. Um, and that's uh, one of those things where you, you really find out how much you did or didn't want to go to the concert. Because when I, I knew I had to book the work travel, and then I looked at the calendar, I'm like, oh, man, the, the Madonna things uh, that day. Oh, well. That's a shame. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> too bad. Um, I, I certainly was not going to cancel uh, London. But I, I wonder, like, is there a ticket that I could have had that would have made me say, you know what? I'm going to have to... I'm going to have to shift that trip. I mean, um, I, look, I, and sometimes you only find out later. I mean, the, the Led Zeppelin thing you mentioned, you, you, you probably anybody thought, well, maybe this means they're going to play some more shows. Right. I don't think anybody knew at the time this is a, a an absolute one-off, right. you know, door shut on the whole thing. I mean, I uh, I think I've mentioned on the podcast, we left the Paul McCartney show to be traffic, uh, <laughs> right. and Ringo Starr showed up and played the encore. <laughs> right. Now, That's heartbreaking. Uh, I'd like to go back in time to see that. If, if I could get <laughs> right. a time machine, right. I would right. I would travel, you know, back to 2000, whatever that was, 2019. Right. Um, so, I, I mean, I think if, if you have the knowledge that something crazy is happening, right. that Springsteen is going to be on stage with Vince Neil. And I'm, I'm sorry. That's not. That's not one. <laughs> I was about to say that's interesting. Yeah, that's that's not one. Um, but, but if there's some kind of pairing that would never ever happen again, right? I mean, honestly, dude, we saw, we saw the Willie Nelson 90th birthday right. thing. Christofferson came out on stage. Yeah. I mean, I I would have traveled for that. Thank God we didn't have to. Yeah. No. Absolutely. I would have to. And and I think that. Um, you know, I, I definitely resonate with the I will travel to to see a show. What I don't get, um, speaking of Springsteen, I saw him in New Jersey one time and I wound up sitting next to a guy. Uh, and, you know, New Jersey is where you want to see Springsteen. And it for wasn't sure. that I went there specifically for um, the show, but I was going to be passing through New Jersey anyway. And when I saw that Bruce was playing, I was like, OK, that becomes a priority. Right. Like I'm going to be in New Jersey. That's his home turf. I'm going to be there. I sat next to a guy who had uh, said that he had gone to like 20 shows on that tour, like Jeez. not 20 Springsteen shows over his lifetime, but on that tour at that point, I'm like, what are you possibly seeing? Yeah. That you're like, well, I never saw that. I think I've probably been to five shows on a single tour before. Yeah. I think you too. Um, and that was cause that was kind of a spiritual experience. And I felt like every time I went, like maybe I got a little younger or something, something <laughs> happened. I got, my back stopped hurting. Um, with Pearl Jam, they do a different set list every night. Right. So th there's something to that idea, yeah. but 20 times. Yeah. That's a uh, lot. Uh, I went to about a half dozen of the shows that Prince did at the forum when he yeah. was, you know, trying to save the forum, which, you know, it's still there. So I guess it worked. Um, but those shows were 25 bucks a ticket and the, every night was completely different. So I would have been happy to go to, he did 20, I would have been happy to go to every one of them because uh, everyone was truly a different experience. So uh, I got I, I went to as many as I could, but I that's one I would have certainly traveled out of town for. And for people wondering, like, where does the money come from to do this? I want you to know I haven't been to the dentist in years. <laughs> <laughs> it, <laughs> it's not like I'm spending money on all the same things that all you guys are spending money on and they still have money for right. concerts. I'm not doing right. important personal right. health maintenance. Right. And you know, one day maybe you can get insurance for your children. I haven't had a haircut since 1998. <laughs> 
I mean, there are things you, you guys are yeah. spending money on. You you don't that need. I'm it. not spending money on. So <laughs> yeah, well, uh, yeah, I don't I don't have to buy uh, razors to shave my face. <laughs> right. uh, so you know that's some some savings there. Um, well, when you talk about live uh, music and great bands, um, we're talking to Charlie Starr today from Blackberry Smoke, and that is a band that uh, if you haven't seen them live, you need to. Yeah. Um, they are a great live band, and um, I remember going to see them at the House of Blues uh, on Sunset, which I don't think is there anymore. I think they got rid of the House uh, of yeah, Blues I on think Sunset you're, I think like you're right. a while ago. Yep. Um, I don't hang out on the strip <laughs> these days so much, but... Um, but we went to see Blackberry Smoke uh, at uh, House of Blues, and then um, Rich Robinson from the Black Crows was there, and they brought him out, and he just played with them for like a few songs, awesome. um, which was very cool. And at the time, I was writing this uh, book about Southern rock that came out in 2014 called Southbound. Um, so go pick it up on Amazon, folks. Uh, <laughs> and I had interviewed Charlie I think via phone for the book. And so his manager was kind enough to give us a couple tickets and backstage passes. So, um, we went backstage and Rich Robinson was just kind of hanging out back in the grave. It was just the band wow. and like their manager and Rich Robinson and me and Mel and like three or four other people. And, uh, I, I briefly met Rich. Um, but you know, the black crows having been like such an important yep, band sure. in, in our Foundational. lives. Um, I don't even remember what I said to him, but I was just sort of like, he was kind of shy. He's kind yeah. of a shy guy. And I was definitely like getting all closed up. You said, up, you like, saved my life. <laughs> <laughs> right. Something awkward. Um, so that was really cool. But yeah, I just remember that show. I can, I, I have a very vivid memory of just standing down on the floor at the house of blues and just being like, man, these guys just absolutely rock. I mean, there are certain bands that, you know, you listen to a record, you're like, these guys are great. And then you see them live and you're like, man, stratospheric, you know, yeah. just, and, and I have such respect for that because anybody with the right producer and the right tools can make a record that sounds good. Right. You know, even if, you know, whatever, like even if somebody basically has no ability whatsoever, they can go make a record that probably could sound passable if they, if you had the right plugins. Right. Uh, totally. But then when you go see a band, you know, live and it's just like, man, this is what it's about. Like the, the, these guys have the goods, like there's no yeah. faking that. I think, you know, kind of the bigger of a production that you're going to see, you know, if you're looking at like an Usher halftime show type right. of tour. And by the way, Usher did a great halftime show and he sang live and I thought he did a phenomenal job, but those shows are not going to stray much from one, night to the next right, you know, right thursday right. night's gonna be a lot like friday night yeah and by a lot i mean identical right and <laughs> you're not gonna be like did he roller skate at the show that you right. went to i think we, <laughs> exactly <laughs> when you see blackberry smoke i think you know one night you'd be like oh geez they the game was turned up a little more on that one amp you know and this one, the guitars actually sounded different <laughs> right, you know and like right. i like going you know if if somebody plays a solo differently i, I like when they forget the lyrics i, I like <laughs> going to shows that have that really human quality and right. when you have sort of an earthy, you know, rock band, like what Blackberry Smoke brings, um, I, you're going to get a show that I think you want to go to more than once. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that whatever it is that the Black Crows do and Blackberry Smoke does and that just sort of real, like, rootsy kind of electric guitar, it's a very southern, it's, a, yeah. it's southern rock. And I think, you know, a lot of people you hear southern rock and you just think like skinner Allman brothers yeah. um but Georgia obviously satellites <laughs> right that's obviously a lot more uh to that label and i think the label has a certain baggage uh that's unfortunate but i think what i consider like modern day southern rock is exactly what they do exactly what the black crows do and uh, i just love that 
kind of music. And I think it's probably one of my favorite kinds of music to, um, hear live. So, um, anyway, so right now I want you guys to listen to this great conversation with Charlie star, but then when it's done, go find out if blackberry smoke is playing near you and go check them out because, uh, they will knock your socks off. Part two. Charlie, welcome to Songcraft. Thanks for having me. So Blackberry Smoke's got a new album called Be Right Here, and you guys have already released some songs in advance of the the album's release. So we've been having a chance to get to know some of these songs for a little bit now, which has been cool. And I think Dig a Hole was the first song that came out from the record. And, you know, when I heard it, it's just got that like deep southern rock kind of guitar groove i mean it's it's what blackberry smoke is is known for and what you guys have really perfected I listen to a song like that and I think, man, this is, you guys have just really like, you're a band that represents a region, but transcends region and seems to kind of connect with people all over the place. Um, And as two guys who are, you know, based in Los Angeles, but from the South originally, I feel like I just really resonate with, with the Southerness of your music. Um, but I'm curious if you have thoughts on what it is about your music that even though it does kind of represent your background and represent a place, what is it about your music that you think connects with people who maybe have never even visited the South? Cause you guys tour all over the place. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I've been asked that question quite a few times. Um, and I, I can never really, uh, come up with a definitive answer, <clears throat> even an opinion, because it really is a little baffling, hmm. uh, to to watch like people in brazil really understand it you know what i mean <laughs> so i don't know i guess you, i guess it's simple <laughs> mm. for lack of a better way to put it it's just not uh it's not hard to understand or hard to like i guess um it's not terribly complicated musically or lyrically um i'm not i've never been much of a um, an abstract lyricist yeah. Just not something I've ever attempted, really. Uh, I like metaphor, but we all do. It makes it interesting, <laughs> you know. But uh, I don't know. I guess it's just uh, it's sort of working class music, you know. Yeah, well, yeah. It's interesting. Um, before we started recording, I was mentioning to you I'd interviewed you in, in 2013 for a book I wrote called Southbound about Southern Rock. And that book came out in 2014. So it's, you know, we're almost 10 years past it now. But one of the things I kind of uh, theorized in that book was that what made Southern rock so appealing to people is that, you know, Southerners, like if you're in the South, being a rocker is you're kind of a a little bit of, at least at at one time, you were a little bit countercultural by being a a rocker in a society that sort of has certain rules and, and that kind of thing. Um, so you're sort of an outsider in, in the South in a way, if you're a rock musician, but then if you're a Southerner, you're kind of almost treated like an outsider in other parts of even 
our own country. Yeah. And so, so you wind up kind of being like this double outsider, which is almost like being double rock and roll. I think there's something that, that appeals to people about just that kind of like outsider kind of rebel status, you know, like even if that's not your culture, everyone kind of resonates with, I think with that feeling of kind of being an outsider or being a rocker or whatever. And, and I don't know, maybe that has something to do with it, you know, in terms of, of Southern rock bands having this sort of appeal all over the place, but yeah. What do I know? I yeah. Know. <laughs> it is sort of a, uh, uh, an underdog type situation. Maybe. Yeah. You're exactly right about uh, what you just said. That really paints a picture. Like, yeah, I think about easy rider, you know, and uh, it's obviously not that extreme now, but, um, or like the, in the late sixties and early seventies, the Almond brothers down in Macon. Yeah. Cause if you go to Macon now, it's not like this, it's not like this, uh, musical mecca uh mm. that maybe it's portrayed to be i mean it's really a small mm. town it's not a macon's not a big place and uh there is a beautiful you know um history there as far as music but if you go down there and like just start walking up to people on the street and ask them what their favorite almond brothers song is they might not know what you're talking about you <laughs> right. know what i mean <laughs> right it's not a it's sort of like Muscle Shoals, I would say, probably. Like if you go up to the gas station, the dude would be like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> right, right, right. And we um, we music nerds are like making our pilgrimage and we think everyone's going to be as obsessed with, uh, with yeah, that yeah. music history as right. we are. <laughs> I have a book about the blues. It's a, it's a photography book. Um, I can't remember when it was published, maybe in the 70s, but it's a European guy who um, basically is giving you the... Uh, photographic history of the blues um or at least part of it i guess that could no, it's not possible to to uh, document the entire history but uh anyway my point is he came to atlanta i think he was from sweden but he came to atlanta and he wanted to find out about blind willie mctell because blind willie played played on the street and like at he played at a barbecue place called a pig and chick back in the back in the 30s i guess mm -hmm. and uh he asked somebody when he got here is like about blind willie and they're like blind willies is down the street it's on the corner it opens at seven <laughs> <He's> <laughs> like, no. That's, he goes and i go in this place and like eat some wings and drink some beer and it's not what i was talking about <laughs> <laughs> right. that's funny you talked a little bit about your approach to lyrics and that, that you're kind of more of a, a literal lyricist in the way you approach things but i i love a song like hammer and the nail i mean that's a, that's a phrase that that we've sort of heard in the world like yeah sometimes you're the hammer sometimes you're the nail but you captured it really well in the song and the only song i've ever heard that's kind of touched that image was i was just thinking about the simon and garfunkel song called um O Condor Pasa off the Bridge Over Troubled Water record. He says, I'd rather be a hammer than a nail. But when Paul Simon sings it, he's, he sounds like the nail. Like it's, <laughs> it's a very soft sounding little song. He sounds like a guy who's currently getting beat up as he's singing it. Yeah. But this is a heavy, well, you know, this is a tough guy riff that you put to this lyric. Well, mine is, um, it's sort of two-pronged. It's like the, the, the punchline or the payoff of the chorus is the guy saying, 
okay, I'm the nail, meaning I'm hard as a nail. Yeah, I'm still here. Give me, bring it on. <laughs> yeah. You, you, the whole world has swung the hammer, and I'm still the nail, and I'm still here. So, yeah, um, that is kind of like that guy is. He realizes what his lot in life is, hmm. and uh, it came from 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 his uh, lots of places, but mainly his dad. You know, he's like, oh, okay, well, the apple don't fall too far kind of thing. But well, and don't forget that nail is still damaging some wood at the same time. You know, that's right. That's right. I, I, just, I hope people understand that. It's like that. Ain't, that's not a guy giving up. That's a guy saying, okay, I'll be the nail then. Yeah. That means I'm hard as nails. Hmm. Yeah. You know, dig a hole, hammer in the nail. Um, those are songs that you co-written. And, you, and you're a person who on a typical Blackberry Smoke album, they'll usually be, you know, you typically write at least half the songs solo, if not more, and then you'll write some of the songs with co-writers. So you seem to be somebody who's very comfortable writing alone and working with collaborators. But um, I look at a song like A Little Bit Crazy on the new record, and, and that's one that you wrote with Travis Meadows. And I think mm -hmm. Travis Meadows, going all the way back to the second album, A Little Piece of Dixie, um, and the song Like I Am... I think that's mm -hmm. the first time we see Travis Meadows' name. It's the first time we see uh, anyone who's not a member of Blackberry Smoke have a writing credit on a song. So he's he's a co-writer for you that goes back, um, you know, all the way to to the to the early days, um, and then right up into this to this new record where we see his name on on a handful of tracks. Um, I'd love to get your thoughts broadly on kind of writing solo versus collaborating and how that's a different process for you, but also kind of specifically what it is about Travis that, you know, is kind of a particularly good partnership in terms of somebody that you click with as a co-writer. Um, well, Travis, uh, it, you're exactly right. He was one of the first, uh, he wasn't the first person I ever wrote with, but um, we started that relationship um, right around that time. I think that was like 2008, the, the first time we ever wrote. Uh, and like I am was, if it wasn't the first song, it was one of the first. Um, I had a, a good friend that worked uh, in publishing that said, I want you to meet this friend of mine. He's from Mississippi and he reminds me a lot of you. You both are from the same kind of part of the country and kind of grew up uh, in a similar way. And and, uh, and we really clicked. He was right. This guy had a good instinct about that. But um, Travis and I, you know, we haven't written a song in the same room since then. Wow. We've wow. been, we've been writing them. Uh, we've been writing them over the phone huh. <laughs> since then. Really? And uh, yeah. And he actually said to me once about probably five years ago, he's like, should we get together? And I said, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mess with the formula. <laughs> we, we laughed. It's like baseball players. He's like, don't change your socks, man. This totally. is working. Let's not, uh, <laughs> let's not screw with it. But um I love him dearly. He's a good friend. Um, and uh, we just click. Yeah. Um, it always seems, it's always exciting to me. And so therefore, to your point, I, I will always, every time I start to write, I don't write songs all the time, personally. This is sort of touching on your second question, or first question, actually. <laughs> uh, when I start to write songs for a project or for a record, that really is the time that I'm like, okay, I'm going to write now. Um, I'll gather ideas uh, all the time. My yeah. phone is full of them, guitar riffs and melodies and lyrical jots, you know? Yeah. But when I sit down to write in earnest, it really is for 
a project huh. um, or either to with someone else like um, with Joe Bonamassa or, or whoever it may be that may say, hey, let's write, you know. Um, but I, I and I have friends who write every day. I just couldn't do it. Yeah. It's it's not how I'm wired, I guess. Hmm. Uh, and I'm not really wired to be the dude who punches the writing clock either. Right. Like the, I, I don't know if I could ever uh, do that and enjoy it. Uh, to be like, oh, that's what I do for a living is mm-hmm. write songs. That seems, uh, I don't know. There's pressure there that I wouldn't like. Yeah. I don't think. Yeah. You know. When we talk about collaborators, you talk about co-writing. I think a lot about you know the DNA of your band and what it takes to to find collaborators that understand the DNA. And sometimes that's not just about the ingredients. You know, you can have two restaurants that use the exact same ingredients, and the food is going to taste completely different. Um, yeah. And finding co-writers that understand i mean because you're talking about you're talking about electric guitars you're talking about vintage amps you're talking about you know drums organs it you know there's there's kind of an instrumental scope that is going to stay within in general it seems um but that's not quite enough i would say to understand what makes blackberry smoke blackberry smoke how do you kind of suss that out when you're beginning to work with somebody who's you got writing songs together and they think they know it and they think they know exactly what you're after yeah i will i think the people that don't that maybe think they get it and don't um their names are not on any black gray smoke <laughs> records <laughs> uh, i think it just works itself out you know? yeah um well I, i've i've never gone and looked uh well early on in black gray smoke's career i was sent to some writing sessions you know and i made friends well travis was one of them and it wasn't sent like literally you go in there i didn't have a pointy stick at my back it was like <laughs> maybe yeah. you would like to meet this guy you know um just a sort of a meeting as songwriters kind yeah. of thing. Um, same with uh, Keith Nelson. I've known Keith since the nineties, since the 1900s. Um, <laughs> since we, I was in a cover band and uh, we became buddies, you know, um, on Buck Cherry's first tour of the right. South. Huh. And I was, I was just knocked out by how good they were. They were such a high energy rock and roll band, you know? And so we became guitar buddies then. And, and, um, when he left the band, when he left Buck Cherry several years ago, he, he, uh, that was tough, you know, that was uh, tough for him, you know, and uh, I, I won't even go into it. It's his personal thing, you know, I love the dude. And, but he was like, hey, um, cause he's a songwriter as well, you know, and he's like, would you want to write songs with me? And I said, yes. Mm-hmm. We had never even discussed that kind of thing. Same with Warren Haynes, same kind of thing. Just friends, you know, and, yeah. and um, musicians who get along. And uh, when uh, COVID kind of brought all that about, mm. you know, like in both of those situations. Yeah. yeah. But it wound up being a good thing. And Keith, to your point, I, I, I didn't have to, I don't have to explain to him. Or Warren, what Blackberry Smoke does, right? You know, <laughs> right, right. So they wouldn't, they wouldn't come to me and go, hey, you know what you need, you know, <laughs> you need a song that goes like this. So, or, or, nor would they say you need something different. You need to change your farm. And that happens though, doesn't it? I mean, you, you'll find someone who's got a vision for you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I get a lot of that on social media. You know, sure. there'll be like, so I got a song that'll be a number one hit for Black Mary. <laughs> um, I don't know. It's, uh, I love it. I I, I love to, for, for a long time, I thought I didn't like co-writing, hmm. you know, um, yeah. or it made me nervous, you know, um, yeah. literally 
speaking. When you go into a room to co-write with somebody, you want to have your best stuff. And you, you know what I mean? You, it's like, you yeah. don't want to walk in with nothing. Right. And uh, I don't know, I guess doing that with people I've never met hmm. is really awkward. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Right, writing songs, I, I love it so much. I, I, I never tire of it. Hmm. It's never... Um, I'll get behind the eight ball and be like, Oh, I got to write some songs. We got, we need to make a new record, you know, and I'll feel that little bit of that. Oh, that, uh, nervous energy. And then as soon as it starts, I just like, uh, I don't want it to stop. It's, yeah. I love it. Yeah. The yeah. creative process is such a, and, and I'll, not everybody gets into that. Like mm -hmm. the dudes in Blackberry smoke, they're not songwriters. They don't get really get into that. You know, yeah. it's not what they, yeah. it's not what they enjoy doing. When you get into album creation mode, do you overwrite for the record, you know, by a, a wide margin? Yeah, because I know that every song's not going to make it. Yeah, you know? um, and uh, I don't, I don't know that I, I, I've never put a stake in the ground and say I'm going to write until I have 18 songs and right. then I'm going to stop. I just, I think yeah, I just uh, personally, I'll write until I'm comfortable. Until, like yeah. I got enough. This is good enough. Yeah, because producers always have a different opinion. I, every time, every record I've ever made. As a professional musician, a producer has said, you need two more fast ones. <laughs> you know, it's like, do I? Okay. <laughs> so I want to ask you about the song Six Ways to Sunday. So we're going okay. back, going back a few albums now. Um, but that song uh, has these lyrics in it that says, honey, I'll pick up the snakes and drink the strychnine too, as long as I get a chance to lay my hands on you. And then the chorus ends with, I'm going to love you six ways to Sunday. I want to hear that woman speaking in tongues. Honey, I'll pick up the snakes and drink the strychnine too. So you're sort of mixing this classic Southern sacred and profane. Uh, it's, it's a grand tradition. Um, but when I looked up the lyrics to this song, uh, the first website that purported to have the lyrics to it, I clicked on it and they wrote this as what the lyric was. Uh, Honey, I'll pick up mistakes and drink the straight line too. And I thought that's, well, better. that's, that's somebody <laughs> I'm like, that's somebody just listening and typing out what they think they hear. And the yeah. reason I bring all that up is because there's a certain cultural, uh, the idea of picking up snakes and drinking strychnine and laying hands. These are all like Southern, uh, Pentecostal religious images. And I can see why somebody might not understand the idea of like yeah. drinking strychnine or know what that, you know, references. Um, mm -hmm. But the reason I bring that up is because you know, Paul and I both grew up in Nashville, but we were both like first generation Nashvilleians and our parents, um, our, our respective small parents towners. came from small towns in rural Tennessee. And I remember like going and visiting like grandparents and extended family and they had ways of talking. They had ways of life that seemed like, you know, so different from my life one hour away in, in Nashville. And it was this sort of authentic, like rural Southern 
culture that I was sort of an insider too, but also sort of an outsider observing it because I came from the city. But these were my family members, people I loved. And, I, and the older I get, the more I sort of treasure those ways of speaking. And, and I hear that. And I bring up that song because it's just one example of in your writing, you keep coming back to, to those type of things. And it reminds me of like the, the stuff I was observing as a kid. So I, I get into that whole long preamble just to say, Tell us about your your growing up years. I don't really know. I mean, I know you're a Southerner, but I don't really know what your experience is and, and where you grew up and, and what kind of things you're observing. But I feel like it must have been kind of similar just based on the language that you use in your lyrics. Yeah, uh, well, I think you're right. Um, I grew up in a, uh, a tiny place, a, a little textile mill town in Alabama, um, right on the... You, you walk to the middle of town and step across into Georgia. So the state line went right through the middle of town, separating these little textile mill villages. And um, my mother, I don't remember my mother and father being married. They divorced when I was a baby. So I split time between two households. And my, my dad lived with his mother, my grandmother, and they were both very devout. And they were both musicians. He played guitar. She played piano and organ at church. He played guitar and sang bluegrass songs and gospel songs. Yeah, it still does. And uh, doesn't like rock and roll, doesn't like even country music with drum. He doesn't like drums, doesn't like electric instruments. <laughs> uh, it's not his thing. He likes string band music. Um, but he loves songs. I think that's where I got it from. Hmm. Um, uh, but in church every Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday evening. Um, and we went to a, an independent Baptist church, which was pretty fiery not a Pentecostal. I did spend some time in a Pentecostal church. My mom actually started down that road for a while. So that was my first experience with seeing people uh, do those things, speak in tongues. And I didn't see anybody handle snakes or drink strychnine. (laughs) I don't know that. I think there's some churches up in the North Georgia mountains that still practice that. that East Tennessee too. East Tennessee. I don't think I would ever go because I think it would feel disrespectful. Yeah, You know what I mean? Like, uh, my dad, I remember telling me one time when I was young, uh, we went to, I, I went to the Pentecostal church with my mom and I it scared me, yeah. the screaming and the, and the speaking in time. It was, it was terrifying. I think that's why I write about it. It really mm-hmm. left a mark. It scared me. It was, uh, no, they didn't mean for that to happen. Nobody was trying to traumatize me, but it was so, it was shocking. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I said something to my dad about it and he said, don't make, uh, he didn't say don't make fun. Uh, I forget. Don't make light of that, I think is what he said. Mm. He said, you don't, d- just because you don't understand it, we can't say something's not correct. Mm. And I said, yeah. okay, okay. That stuck with me too. He's like, he's like, you just, you just mind your own business, <laughs> basically, <laughs> is what he's telling me. Right. It's like, you do you and you let them do them. That's, yeah. that's their thing. Yeah. Uh, who are you to question it? That was what he said to me. Um, anyway, that, I think that's why. So, so those kind of things, uh, well, those stories, I'll never forget them. Mm-hmm. Those those Bible stories and the stories that we tell kids in the in the uh, I, I can't speak to Catholic behavior because I'm not Catholic, but Protestant behavior. The stories that I was told and that we continue to tell our kids that uh, you better do good. Yeah. <laughs> or yeah, it's it's strong. It's strong imagery. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I'm not I'm not questioning it either because I'm a I'm a um, I'm a spiritual individual. 
and I believe in God. I believe what I believe, you know. Um, therefore, uh, or, or however, human beings have really complicated religion, haven't they? <laughs> yeah. Um, continue to do so. Just look <laughs> at the news right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, those things were more interesting to write about to me than drinking and partying. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so, and I had this same conversation with Alice Cooper years ago. Uh, when the Whippoorwill album came out, he interviewed me for his radio show. And, uh, you know, he was a preacher's son. Yeah. And uh, he's, I remember watching an interview with him and he said, the thing about my dad was he could quote you any Bible verse that you asked, but he could also tell you every member's name of the animals. <laughs> so he knew, he knew rock and roll and religion. And, uh, <laughs> right. and we, we sort of found common ground there on the rock and roll and, and uh, that imagery that, that the Bible gives us, you know, it's scary. Yeah. Well, that, that leads me to uh, a, a question that I was thinking of just now, because you described, you know, both households that you grew up in as devout. Um, and then in, in sort of like reading your backstory a bit, we see names, influences like Van Halen and Aerosmith coming up. You know, when you were younger, you started to hear that stuff. That can be quite the collision of a devout household and uh, dis the discovery of, you know, what David Lee Roth and Steven Tyler have to say. Um, yeah. You know, how did that work? First of all, how did you discover those bands? Were, were you, were you forbidden from listening to that type of music or did you kind of find them on your own? And how did that go down when you kind of maybe brought the vinyl back home? Well, my older sister, she's four years older. She was the first person who started bringing rock and roll music in. Uh, well, my mom went, she, I don't know. There were sort of waves of this is allowed and this is not. Right. Uh, she was she was searching. So she loved the Stones and the Beatles and Bob Dylan and the Beach Boys. And that was always on when I was a kid. And then she decided all that was the devil's music for a while. And she <laughs> burned like my sister had. You have your kiss shirt on. She had Alive too, And yep. she had Frampton Comes Alive. And she had uh, this was 83 or so. She had uh, Pyromania, Def Leppard. She had uh, Out of the Cellar, Rat. Uh, <laughs> And all that stuff got burned. So oh in the front God. yard. So there was a little bonfire of records. And I remember thinking, how funny and ironic is this that pyromania is on fire <laughs> <laughs> in the front yard? <laughs> and then and then she kind of settled down on that again. And I remember she did like Van Halen. I went and bought 1984 at Walmart. Hmm. Um, and I, I remember she, when the cult released Sonic Temple, she liked mm. that. Mm. Wow. Um, and uh, Guns N' Roses, I, I remember her saying, um, I forget which Guns N' Roses song it was. So this would be 87. Uh, and her saying, well, that sounds good. That's like, that's a good, I like that song. It may have been Sweet Child of Mine. Yeah. So so she eased up on, she was still religious, but she eased up on the rock and roll of being the devil's music thing when she, especially when she saw that that's where I was headed. Yeah. Mm. So I, I think I started to be like, hey, can I borrow your Bob Dylan tape? Can I borrow your Stones tape? And uh, she'd be like, oh, okay, here you go. <laughs> yeah. Can I yeah. borrow your Charlie Daniels decade of hits? Can I borrow, you know. Um, and then that all became mine. So, yeah. yeah. Sometimes when I'm picking through a, a bin of used vinyl, I think about how many more records there would be if they hadn't been burned. You know, if there weren't so many <laughs> yeah. bonfires around the country. <laughs> somebody somebody called it. Uh, there, was a, there was a name for the movement the other day, and it was such an 80s thing. It was... It was um, it wasn't directly linked to the Tipper Gore right. thing, but it was the, what was it called? Uh, it the, was brilliant. The Satanic Panic? 
that was it that's it okay you yeah that's right so everybody's a devil worshiper that was the <laughs> right, the, the right satanic panic yeah. wow. and that went around my hometown it became uh and it was all due to you know ozzy osbourne and judas priest sure. right and dio and everybody was like knights in satan's service yeah, kiss was and, not yeah or kids in search of <laughs> satan right. i heard that one too yeah anti anti-christ devil's Devil child yeah um <laughs> Uh, Wasp was my, we are sexual perverts. You remember that one? <laughs> yeah. yeah, my buddy Benji said that Slayer was Satan laughs as you eternally rot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's amazing. Meanwhile, I just saw that Igloo is offering a Slayer cooler now. That yeah, you can... yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, How right. silly does Slay so, Satanic Panic? Yeah. So mainstream. Um, um, there's also a road. I think that all of my small town people un, uh, have a similar story about a very spooky dirt road on the outskirts of town where it's rumored that devil worshipers are, you know, right, doing right. their, applying their trade. And uh, <laughs> right, right. ours was called Smedley Road. It's still out there. <laughs> wow. I bet you still wouldn't drive up at the night, would you? <laughs> no, not at night. <laughs> um, well, so by around the year 2000, we see Blackberry Smoke emerge. You have uh, fully embraced your your rock and roll ways. You are now a professional musician. And the first record that you guys put out in 2003, Bad Luck Ain't No Crime, you know, I listened to a song like Testify from that record. And that's that opening track is just this like riff heavy, mid-tempo, unapologetically Southern rock song. But then I, I listen to other songs on that record, like Train Rollin'. It sounds more like I hear like some Alice in Chains in there, you know? Like I hear a little bit more like that that rock edge. <laughs> fascinated by like how bands kind of you know start honing what it is they do and find their trajectory and i mentioned that first album because it's it's rough around the edges um mm -hmm. and then by the second album little piece of dixie you know dan huff is involved as a producer we see um you know co-writers coming in like randy hauser and craig wiseman this is like a lot of nashville is getting injected you know, into the, into the sound, which sort of set you guys on a kind of a, a path. I mean, there's, there's a Nashville element to, to what you guys do for sure. But I'm curious about those early days as you were kind of like making the first record. And there was a few years until the, the second record. Talk about the evolution of not just the sound, but the evolution of the songwriting as you're still like out there on the road, you're doing it, you're building your fan base, but you're also defining what Blackberry Smoke is and what kind of songs you're going to write. Well, you know, we made that first record really quickly as soon as we formed the band with Jesse Dupree, a uh, great friend. And um, he took us on the road opening for Jackal. 
and we made that record. Um, I'd only written four or five songs. Um, myself and Britt and Richard were coming out of a band. We were we were the band of a sing- singer songwriter, and so we kind of we we parted ways with him. He went on and did his thing. He moved away. And I said, well, I've got some songs. We only played that guy's songs in that band. And I said, well, I've got some songs. Testify was one of them. Sanctified Woman was one of them. Normal Town was one of them. It was, that was, I co-wrote with a guy named Tommy Rivers. I had been in his band previous to, to the band I was in with Britt and Richard. And um, we started jamming those songs as a trio. And, uh, and I said, we need another, we need a harmony vocal and we need another guitar. You know, and uh, so I called my old buddy Paul Jackson, who was in a cover band down in my hometown. We were doing the same thing, you know, putting in our ten thousand hours. Mm-hmm. And um, he came up, and he was a, the lead singer in his band. Uh, he's got a beautiful voice. He sounds like Steve Perry, you know, mm-hmm. and um, and a great guitar player too. And, and just a he understands music, you know. And, uh, anyway, Jesse got wind of. The song Sanctified Woman is the song that brought him in. Yeah. I remember him telling me, he's like, that song sounds like shortening bread. <laughs> and I said, yeah, it kind of does. And he goes, that's the kind of, that'll never lose. That, that's the kind of song that will will make people fans of your band and they'll mm. never go away. You know? yeah. And uh, he's, he was telling the truth to yeah. people that that's the song that hooked him. Anyway, he said to me, I had written, back then it was all for all one and one for all. We were young, we were in our 20s, you know, and, I was yet to even understand what songwriting and publishing and all that, what it even meant, you know? Yeah. And uh, so he's like, you need to write, you know, he's like, looks at the other guys in the band. Y'all got any songs? Everybody's like, nope. (laughs) And he's like, you got any more? I said, I got a couple of ideas. He goes, go write them because you got to write an album's worth. (laughs) So went and we wound up throwing together two covers for that record, Freeborn Man and, and, um, Another chance, the Georgia Satellite song. Yeah, and then uh, wrote a few more songs. And he said, "I remember him saying, are you prepared to write an album's worth of songs a year? Because that's what you got to do if this is if you're going to be the lead singer and the songwriter, you know? Yeah, that's what you do." And mm-hmm. uh, so we we made that record with him so quickly, and uh, I, we didn't have of our own. I love that. I have great memories of that time. I love the record. You know, I mean, most people hate their first record and it's easy to hate because you haven't found yourself yet. You Mm. don't know that's maybe not your sound yet or um, to your point, like, okay, it all. And we found it on the road. We went on the road. There was a huge amount of time between those first two records. And we made the new honky tonk bootlegs EP out of these country songs, these traditional, more traditional type songs, even silly songs, you know? Yeah. Um, that we knew well Dan Huff hated those so we're like well we'll put them out because <laughs> you know we were going to put like Son of the Bourbon or or um, Keep On Keeping On on the second album which became Little Piece of Dixie and he's like no you're not <laughs> I don't like those songs <laughs> <laughs> so we put that out and then um, and then with Dan it was it was like that was the only Nashville that kind I love Dan He's a great producer. He's a great musician. Um, but I remember having already written One Horse Town and Pretty Little Lie and Ain't Much Left of Me with, well, those two with Travis and then Ain't Much Left of Me with David Lee Murphy, who wrote Goodwin Coming On with Leroy Parnell. 
um, we were pitched good one coming on. I remember, uh, before, right before we met Dan, hmm. somebody said, you should do this song that David Lee Murphy sings. It's, it's right up you guys alley. And that was a weird thing to think, well, I don't want to be pitched songs. I want to do these. Yeah. I wrote these yeah. songs. I don't want to do other people's songs, you know? Um, not like that. Yeah. No, that's kind of bit like being told, well, your shit's not good enough. Yeah. So hmm. go do this other people's shit. So that was, that's the Nashville thing that I didn't like. It was like, well, if, if these songs are not good enough, then I'll keep working at it until they are, you know? Yeah. Uh, but those other songs were our most popular songs. Now it hmm. was one horse town and pretty little lie. and ain't much left to me and ain't got the blues and things like that. So I remember looking at those songs thinking, well, I don't agree. Mm. I think these songs are good enough. I feel like that that I would not ever be ashamed to sing them. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, not for the rest of my career. I knew, I remember playing One Horse Town for the first time for even for the dudes in the band. Mm. And I was like, you're gonna love this because it's good. It's not, you know what I mean? It's yeah. not you're you're it's not hard to understand. You're gonna get it as soon as I play it, you know. And, uh, and that was the case. And so looking back, I think, um, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. but I, I, ever since that point, I've never not trusted my gut again. Wow. And I've said, yeah. okay, I, I know these songs are, are good. And so this is what we're going to record. <laughs> and I think that's what made me want to, uh, produce our own records. Huh? Wow. Yeah. Right after that. So, um, and I mean, the history tells the tale. I love um, Little Piece of Dixie. It's a great record. I had a great time making it. We made it very piecemeal. It was a couple of songs at a time because Dan was very busy and we were still on the road. Yeah. So uh, it was over a six months or so, a six month period or so where we would run into Blackbird or we would run into the castle or we would run into Dan's house or, and um, just, you know, track this and then track that. And it wasn't a comfortable way to make a record. Hmm. Uh, but it's a good sounding record, you know, and the songs are good. Yeah. But the whippoorwill is where we found our ourselves. I know we're about to get into that record, but just one more question about those early days, you know, talking about you guys opening for Jackal. I mean, that's that actually is a pairing that makes sense to me because um, I, I remember that song Down on Me coming out. It felt very ACDC at the time, what Jackal was doing in the 90s. And then, you know, for anyone that grew up on Southern Rock, for me, the connection to Southern rock to rock was closer to my ears than the connection of Southern rock to country. It was easier for me to yeah. draw a through line to faces and the stones um, than it was to draw it to Waylon Jennings or Buck Owens at the time, you know? And, yeah. and you know, but when you start to get into, you know, the, the situation with labels and with producers and stuff, genre bending is not as exciting to the people in the offices as it is to the people in the band. Um, That's right. And so, you know, did you find yourself kind of wrestling with this idea of everybody asking you, hey, what are you? Are you country? Are you rock? And you, we're us, you know, was, yeah. was that the kind of thing that was, you know, bandied about? And, and did it make those early days difficult at all having to try to land on things that made everybody happy? I think it made it difficult for us if, because we were never, you know, we, I think we only had one dinner with a major label guy mm. and, um, and he was honest with us. He's like, well. And this was already like a decade in. <laughs> He's like, "Well, you guys aren't young, <laughs> and <laughs> you you kind of you've kind of set yourself in motion, you know this this direction. 
and I bet you're not willing to change it, are you? And we were like, <laughs> not really. And he's like, okay, well, let's just have dinner. <laughs> Amazing. And uh, so we kind of live. He's and he was very honest and and forthright. You know, he's like, I can't offer you uh, anything that's going to be something that you're going to jump at. Yeah. Um, that was out in Los Angeles. Um, but at that time, you know, that was people were still selling records then. Yeah. Like physical copy and but everything was a 360 deal you know and it's like well uh we kind of already have a good thing going here with with our own merchandise and i mean it's just we had already he was right we had already set ourselves in motion and so it was like it would have been a weird turnaround yeah like, wait a minute we're gonna do a complete 180 here and go back and be told what to do and yeah, yeah, yeah. told to get a specific haircut and <laughs> put in the studio with a producer who wanted to make you know formulaic recordings and it would have been weird yeah. um but to that point also we 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 had a t-shirt printed way back then like 2000 i don't know seven or eight that said two country for rock two rock for country which was like well maybe that'll be something people could latch on to yeah and they did our fans did yeah and um and it became a thing yeah so you talked about kind of hitting your songwriting stride with the whippoorwill record and and you know you specifically mentioned pretty little lie and and one horse town as songs that you kind of went away and like man if this if these other ones aren't fitting the bill then like let me keep working and those were a couple that you that you came out with that you were real real happy with um and one horse town is paul and i were talking about this before uh we hopped on the zoom with you um that's a song that could easily be written wrong. It's a song that um, is kind of cynical. And yeah. if you didn't write it in, like if you wrote that song as a third person song instead of a first person song, it would sound uh, really kind of almost elitist in a way. But being a first person song, it's that sort of like, man, I feel like I'm just in this like kind of dead end cycle in this little town and you know the the lyrics are, are talking about you know you grew up doing what your daddy done and you know don't climb too high or dream too much and you know the 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 whole thing is like if you work your ass off you might be able to just sort of wind up back where your dad was and then you have your own yeah. kids in the site you know so like that song uh lyrically is i would think would be a, a tricky one to write to make sure that, like how do we do this and we make sure that like we're putting the words in the mouth of a character that are authentic versus creating some sort of looking down at small town life kind of stereotypical kind of song. You don't climb too high or dream too much With a whole lot of work and a little bit of luck You can wind up right back where your daddy was This little bitty town it ain't nothing new We all stick around Cause they all I'm just curious to hear about you guys kind of writing that song and, and how the concept kind of came together and, and if that was sort of part of the, the lyrical process of like, hey, how do we do this the right way so that we're not sending the wrong message here? Well, I don't think that that was even uh, that that point was ever even touched on. I think we were comfortable with because coming from that, it was like, well, I know this is not hypocritical for for either of us because it's we've both lived 
this kind of thing. <clears throat> and, uh, and, and me, especially already having a child, you know, my oldest son, uh, he was born, I was 23. Um, so that was real, you know? And it was like, and I remember thinking I'm old. My, my, all my buddies are 18 and have kids, you know? <laughs> right. So it's like, that was a real, it was all real. That's what kept it from being, I think, even feeling, uh, well, from feeling hypocritical, first of all, but even mean spirited. Yeah. yeah. It's like, I was like, well, shit, I'm sure they're, um, I've got friends who, who love their lives. If they're, if, if they're, if their life, if their choice in life is to stay here, yeah. Yeah. But then I'm sure I got other friends that I graduated high school that were like, God, I would love to do anything but work here. You yeah. know? <laughs> right. Um, right. <laughs> but I, I watched some also at my at the time, my ex-wife's family, there was a young uh, uh, there was a guy in their family who is now uh, a professional baseball player. He's a pitcher. Mm -hmm. he, uh, and we I watched him. That was all going on when 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 we wrote this song, I was watching him. He was going pro and I was like, wow. OK, well, and he was one of those young kids who was uh, sort of groomed from a little bitty guy, T-ball, all the way up through travel ball. All, I mean, and everybody knew like, OK, he's 13 and throws 97 miles an hour. I think he's <laughs> going to be a professional baseball player. Right. Um, and it was like, OK, well, there he goes. And uh, so that was real. Yeah. To, to watch mm -hmm. to watch him go go make make it to the show. Um the the only thing that I kept thinking about that song, I was like, well, this story's not new. Mm. Right. But then but then I was like, who cares? It'll never be old either. Right. Because it keeps on happening. And it and generation after and I'm and now after all these years and these people that I talk to every night that we play the show, they're like that's one of the songs that we could not get out of the town if we didn't play it, you know, and um, people from 80 years old to 18 understand it. Yeah. Um, and, and that, that's why we do it. Right. Yeah. That's why you write songs is to try to, to try to write stuff that touches people or at least, you know, they get it. Well, yeah, you say it's, it isn't new. I mean, a love song isn't new either, you know, and, and, and yet, it's it's almost like well each generation comes on and says well, yeah but we haven't gotten ours yet you know we haven't yeah you know and and to have these songs written you know decade after decade I think it's it's important to touch on these things because we we can't expect people to go back and just find well there there's a there's a small town song back in the seventies you go go find that one um, yeah yeah <laughs> I, I don't I don't know if um, I don't know I get well to that point like Keith Richards said one time he's like it's all just one big song we just all reach up and take our little piece of it yeah. You know, yeah. and uh, it's kind of like everything's really been said and we all just try to find a little twist yeah. in the way that we say it or the way that we tell the story. I think, uh, Paul, it's interesting that you just mentioned like love songs. There's, you know, everybody's writing love songs. Um, when we uh, interviewed Billy Gibbons, we were like going through the ZZ Top catalog and we're like, there are no... Most everybody's writing love are, songs. You're like, there are no... <laughs> Love songs, and there's very few bands that don't really write about love. ZZ Top doesn't do love songs. Credence didn't really do love songs. Roth era Van Halen didn't do love songs, right. but then Hagar era absolutely did. Yeah, so it's there's like, yeah. it's it's like love songs are 
the staple of rock and roll. With that's why it stands out when you have bands that don't really write a lot of love songs. But you don't let, write a lot of love songs, and you know you've got a song like Barefoot Angel uh, on the new record, which it, it is a love song. It's a and love song, yeah. Giving to takers and quick money makers sure can be hard on a heart. I wear it over my clothes and I'm overexposed to the storms that keep coming in hard. That makes me thankful that you're in this with me, love, my barefoot angel. Again, it kind of stands out because I'm like, oh, Charlie doesn't write a lot of love songs and when you think about what people write about it's like you know love desired love gone bad some you know it's always like a, a kind of a, a love thing i'm always fascinated when people are able to avoid the topic in a way and i'd love to get your thoughts on like writing a love song when that is actually something that's a little bit outside of your wheelhouse like that's not what you kind of rely on yeah well i it, it kind of um uh, it's something that dawned on me after a few albums, it was like, I don't ever really ever really write love songs. Um, Ain't Got the Blues is kind of a love song. Um, Everybody Knows She's Mine is a love song. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then there'll be gaps of none. <laughs> and then, and then, like you said, come, coming up, uh, Adam Hood and I wrote Barefoot Angel and we had been making a record with him in Macon at Capricorn. And um, we we're sitting around one night and we started well, we wrote a song. We finished a song that's on his record, uh, Adam and Brent Cobb and I. And then, uh, and then I had this idea, and and um, and it turned into Barefoot Angel. But I remember he he was like, "We're writing a love song, aren't we?" And I said, "I think we are." He's like, "Is that cool <laughs> with you?" <laughs> I said, "Yeah, it is." Yeah. So um, I don't know. It's just not. Uh, it's hard to write this love song when there's all these devil songs to be written (laughs) (laughs) who's gonna write the devil songs if you're distracted with the love song that's right i'll leave the love songs to somebody else Um, no it's never i never sat down or or set out rather when when writing a batch of songs to be like i need to one of these and one of these and one of these yeah yeah um you know the thing about blackberry smoke that i love is that you guys are just like this tight riff heavy band. And I, I just love the sound of your band. I love like how so many of the songs, which is funny because the songs we've been diving the deepest on are not necessarily the riff songs, but so many of your songs are like these just great, like crank it up and roll the window down, you know, kind of riff uh, songs. And, you know, I can hear, obviously there are certain shared DNA with black crows with Leonard Skinner, you know, there's things mm-hmm. that, you know, you guys clearly are, are drawing from some of the same inspirations as, as some of these other bands. Um, but I listened to, uh, like it was yesterday on the new record mm-hmm. and I hear kind of a George Harrison Beatles thing going on.
I'm like, huh, I don't really think I've ever listened to Blackberry Smoke and thought, oh, I, I'm catching like a Beatles thing here. You know, that's not kind of a typical um, thing for you guys, which is interesting to me that when you look at a band that's like made as many albums as you guys have that like, oh, there's still some new influences. There's still some new little things getting thrown in there, like nods to like, hey, this is what these these guys dig and you know what they what they draw from um and i'm curious obviously you don't put a lot of like beatles kind of influence stuff in your music but uh what kind of i mean the beatles touch every musician in in some way but like what what is kind of your relationship with the beatles music as a songwriter uh well i love it dearly um that was one of my mom's big ones it was stones beatles bob dylan beach boys those four um Rod Stewart too. She loved Rod, still does. Um, so there was equally as much. There was equally as I think she liked the Stones a little more, which is maybe why I leaned toward that guitar wise. Yeah. yeah. But, but I mean, let's face it. Where would we any of us be without the Beatles? Hmm. It's just. Have you? Can you imagine another four people that were that influential on? The whole world, not even just music, but they changed the world. Um, I was just watching a, the, uh, I forget which documentary. There have been so many now in the last decade or so. Maybe it was the Ron Howard one where they mm-hmm. were talking about coming to play the South. They were playing baseball stadiums. They played Atlanta. They played Fulton County Stadium in 1965. And they wouldn't do it because and initially there was some talk of, of segregation. Right. Mm-hmm. of them not allowing black people to come to the concert. And Paul McCartney was like, what are you talking about? Yeah. Well, then we're not going to play. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that Whoopi Goldberg even touched on it, but I was like, that was a heavy time yeah. Yeah. in the United States is like, especially in the South. And I never even thought about that. I never even thought, Oh, let's put the Beatles into that right. situation. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, uh, and then, and he didn't go any further in it. He's like, that's, that's ridiculous. Shut up. We're playing and everybody's everybody's welcome. Um, and so I thought, well, that's some that's some world changing kind of shit right there. That's yeah. not something. That, and they kind of glossed over it a little yeah. bit. I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, what? You know, and I don't um, think that could have happened if they weren't British, uh, you know, like uh, having exactly if, if they'd grown exactly. up in America around it, it would have been a foregone conclusion. Oh, that's just how it is. But yeah, but coming in from the outside, they were like, that. what? No, we're not doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I mean, watching that, my, like everybody from like my mom's generation, they all have that story about seeing the Ed Sullivan performance right. and how everything was different after that. Like, yeah. um, so I just got goosebumps and like mm-hmm. that to have a, to have four young dudes that are singing love songs at right. that point, they were singing love songs. They were singing, hold your hand songs. Yeah. Um, and then to watch them, and it's such a short period of time that they were a band. Yeah. Was it five years, seven years? I mean, for Something them to like be actually, actually a band on the world scene, it was six, six, I mean, yeah, sixty-three six. to sixty-nine. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So six, yeah, and and that much recorded material that's just earth-shatteringly good. And yeah. I mean, wow. Yeah. So, but to your point, I was playing. Um, I, I have the. Uh, test pressing for B right here, right over here. And I was playing it the other day and my wife's heard all these songs. She hears them get written, you know, and uh, I don't ever go, Hey babe, listen to this. Well, sometimes I do, 
um, <laughs> I played <clears throat> Azalea. I mm. sang it for her and my son. And they, the, I said the one word, the one one word, the first word of the song. They went, love it. <laughs> so I was like, okay, that's good. They've never done that before. Um, but like it was yesterday was playing and she was in the kitchen and she said, that sounds kind of like Big Star. And I said, wow, that's good. That's a good thing, right? She said, that is a good thing. Yeah. I said, I'll take I'll well, take you, Your wife's a deep music listener. She's pulling a big star. She that's is. like. That's well, one of the reasons we fell in love. We were huge Steve Earle, Towns Van Zandt fans. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to go into a whole thing about Steve Earle someday uh, as a small town song, but I don't want to go backwards now. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> love that song too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. And even like going back to like waiting for the thunder, you know, I mean, that's a unapologetically Southern rock song, but I hear a little power pop, you know, I hear a little big star, maybe like creeping into a song like that. You know what I heard the other day? It was uh, I went and did the Daryl uh, live from Daryl's house with Daryl Hall. Yeah, and he wanted to do that song, which blew my mind because oh. I thought, well, that's way outside his wheelhouse. But he wanted to do it, and it was fun. It was yeah. great, and he sang a verse, and it was great. I just was, I was humbled and knocked out. Yeah, and and he said, this song reminds me of that band, The Smithereens. Oh, yes, nice. I thought pop, that yeah. too. Yeah, yeah. I was like, wow, I've never thought about that. I love that band. Thank you. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. We played Girl Like You in our first band. We played a terrible <laughs> version of that song. A terrible, terrible yeah. cover of yeah. that. Um, you know, I listened to a song like Let Me Down Easy from your Find a Light record. Um, and, you know, that's a song that like is acoustic. Kind of reminds me a little bit of like uh, Tom Petty's Wildflowers a little bit. You know, like it's got that just sort of lilting, like very appealing kind of groove. not hard for me to imagine you writing that song um because you know it's it's an acoustic guitar but so many of your songs like coming back to dig a hole from from the new record it's hard to, for me to imagine a guy sitting down with an acoustic guitar like when you write do you sit down with an acoustic guitar or are you like all right honey you got to get the kids out of the house because i'm about to crank the amp up to <laughs> nine and like you know uh <laughs> i'm about to just start rocking in here like do do you write on electric primarily when it's these riff heavy songs or do you write on acoustic uh well i don't ever really crank it up in the house and here and do that and write that way um but dig a hole specifically that riff already existed it was something that we used to go into in the middle of testify Mm -hmm. um, and it's on a live record. It's just a, it's just a, a jam. Yeah. Um, 
And I remember I was listening to a live that live version and I heard that and I was like, oh, I love that riff. And, and I, we haven't done it in forever. And Brandon subsequently had sent me a riff that is the chorus of Dig a Hole. It's got this seventh thing on the Wurlitzer. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I was driving. It was like, hey, you know what? Those two is like chocolate and peanut butter. I was mm. like, those two things could work together. So I came home and um, didn't have to crank the amp up. But <laughs> uh, it came from a cranked amp situation, that riff, and uh, got the acoustic guitar and married those two things and wrote the lyrics. And so that's how that song came together. Those are and, actually um, some of my favorite songwriting stories about the the epiphanies of combination rather than just yeah. everybody thinking that you came up with it as a completed picture, you know, from start to finish, but that you could you could you could have a riff in your mind for six months and not realize how it combines with another one until that day in the car. Yeah. It was just it, it wasn't and I was it was no hurry. It was I I don't think I'd even started writing for this record yet. It mm. was just one of those things where it was like, oh and uh I, I was thinking about that thing he sent me. Yeah. It was like, what could happen there? What could what melodically what can happen there and then somehow my brain meandered into those things being married but then still it had to have other things you know to tie it all together and um that therein lies the fun of garage band and things like that where (laughs) right i remember um i started when i started to use garage band and logic and i started to send i used to make starting with the Starting with Little Piece of Dixie, I would make home recordings with acoustic guitar and these little bongos. Hmm. I had a little four-track, Fostex, which then turned it into a digital four-track. And so I would that's how I would send the dudes the songs you know, wow. for years. And then here comes Logic and GarageBand, and I started using the drummer in there. And I remember the first song I sent to the guys, Brit just wasn't aware of what was possible. <laughs> on a laptop and he Who goes played on this who the fuck is that playing the drums <laughs> he's like worried about his job <laughs> i said well i think his name is jeff in the program <laughs> that's hilarious I-, I had one of those little fostex uh four track cassette recorders back in the day and uh uh, Paul might be the only person who heard my 13-year-old cover version of <laughs> Fire by Jimi Hendrix, which had all the swagger of a 13-year-old whose voice hadn't quite fully changed yeah, yet. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. and I, I think I eventually just burned that tape. That's We could have added that to your mom's burn uh, tape burning pile <laughs> yeah. it, it, for other reasons. It, it was not, evil. It did, not, it did not need to be heard. Uh, <laughs> so obviously the Fostex uh, served you much better, and it's been fun, uh, Charlie, to talk with you about your songwriting kind of the evolution over the years the new record is called be right here and uh, if our listeners are wondering if it's good of course it's good it's blackberry smoke and they're a freaking great band so uh, check that out and um you know make sure to 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 crank it up and uh charlie thanks again this has been a lot of fun thank you guys thanks for listening to make sure you don't miss an episode of songcraft Please take a moment right now to subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can keep up with us on Instagram at Songcraft Conversations or Facebook at Songcraft Show. To join our team and help support our content, become a Songcraft patron at patreon.com. Visit patreon.com slash songcraftshow. And you can always find us at songcraftshow.com. 